This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where we're examining the week's financial and business news and uh, inevitably talking too much about Brexit. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me is Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham. Craig, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. I'm going to kick off with what we can, I suppose, charitably call mayhem, which was uh, this week's Brexit news. The Prime Minister um, grasping uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, going from winning a no-confidence vote to uh, embarrassment in Brussels. We we talked a lot about Brexit on this programme and elsewhere, but in terms of how markets are reacting, in terms of what happens next, I mean, what's been your views about this week? Yeah, I mean, it's quite extraordinary to think that this week actually started with planning for a vote on her Brexit deal, Mm. a vote which she called on her Brexit deal, which she very quickly became aware uh, of the fact that she was going to lose the vote on her Brexit deal. Then it was a conversation in Parliament about the fact that she was cancelling the vote. Then at times there was actually suggestions that she would have to get Parliament to vote on her ability to cancel the vote on her Brexit deal, which she also thought she may lose. Like it, This week, has to say this has been extraordinary is, is an, a huge, huge understatement. And Monday feels like such a long time ago already. Since then, we, as you say, we had the 48 letters handed in, which has been long awaited. It feels like we've been talking about the fact that we've been on 47 now uh, for months and months and months. We finally got to the 48. And you were thinking, if they've hit the 48 now, they must be really confident that they can get those extra votes needed to topple May. They must have had some (laughs) really strong assurances. Uh, And then that vote gets easily defeated in Parliament, two-thirds to one-third, which you view as a a position of relative strength for May, really. She survived the vote. It wasn't particularly close. We now have, she has 12 months until she can uh, be challenged again. And... All of a sudden, she goes from a position of apparent strength with the obvious uh, noise around from Brexiteers, te- the, the stauncher Brexiteers, I should say, the re-smogs of this world, telling us that while 52-48 was significant, 60-40 is completely insignificant and she should still resign anyway. And then she goes to Brussels. And you're thinking... I said yesterday, I was never that confident she'd get much from Brussels. I feel like Brussels has a few more hands they can play before the no deal becomes a real prospect in their eyes. Sure, we'll get to that in a minute. But But you thought they may at least offer something. And it seems she's come, the, the visit has really been a big setback for Theresa May that to the point that she... The vote now will not take place before Christmas. Fortunately, we don't have a deadline shortly after that we absolutely must hit. And it now looks as though we're we're very much going to be in a position that we almost thought we were going to be in a number of months ago. I was really surprised when they agreed this back in November. When they came to an agreement on deal, I remember saying at the time, I, I can't believe this hasn't happened at the 11th hour. Usually, it, it, it's very much, this is a minute to midnight deal, a dark room until 4am, and then they all bang their heads together and decide, you know what, here's the agreement. And we were saying at the time, I can't believe they've done this early. This yeah, isn't so unlike them. the last minute. And little did we know. <laughs> yeah. How much of this, this feels to me like one of these weeks which journalists love, but the rest of the country tears their hair out, which is that we've had a lot of noise and a lot of headlines, and yet we're no further along really in terms of substance than we were 168 hours ago. 
nothing's really changed. Well, I think there's there's one thing that's changed, and uh, this is the fact that there was always going to be the possibility, and we've seen everyone's in a hundred flow diagrams now about the different routes that we can go down towards a deal or a no deal scenario. And all, basically, what these flowcharts showed was there's a number of checkpoints that we'd have to, we may have to bypass mm-hmm. in order to eventually get to a point when we know what's going to happen. The first of those was the vote of no confidence in Theresa May. That checkpoint's been done. We've moved on from that. Another one uh, would would be, for example, a vote of no confidence in the government. And I don't think we're too far away from that one because if Theresa May comes back to Parliament and all she's got is the deal she cancelled last time, the deal that she cancelled the vote on last time. I think that's swiftly followed by a vote of no confidence because this is something that Labour already backs, the Lib Dems already back, the SNP already backs, and she's very reliant now on the DUP. And that's assuming that there's not members of her own party who wouldn't consider, I know this sounds utterly ridiculous, but that wouldn't consider actually backing it themselves because they see that this is the only way they could possibly salvage their idealistic version of Brexit. That's sure. extreme, but uh, the DUP could very much Yeah, it. I mean... No Conservative wants Jeremy Corbyn to get in um, at this stage just because, you know, it's their opposition. Well, we have to remember that's but, not a guarantee. Um, but Theresa May has now said that she won't stand for another election. So if uh, there was to be a, a snap general election, then presumably another leader would have to be found. She would have to resign by her own rules. But let's just back off that a little bit let's just talk about brexit because as you say we have the vote in january now so legally um the the government have to give a meaningful vote to mp's on the brexit deal if as seems likely we don't get a huge amount of substantial difference from what was um what failed to be put in front of parliament this week we assume that the uh, the, the, they vote down that deal. What happens then? Can you really see this going to March in a no deal? Because I'll be honest, I can't see a responsible government letting that happen. I can't see a responsible government letting that happen, but I also can't see the EU letting that happen because it's not in their interest either. If, if, you, if, you, if you imagine that the entire, the entire reason for a backstop is to, avoid a no, uh, is to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland, then allowing a no deal to happen would be the most irresponsible way of enforcing the one thing you've been trying to avoid in the long term. So there's, I don't think there's any appetite from any side, from any, any, part, any MPs or anyone in Brussels of seriousness who are actually looking at no deal as a good option. And that, but it's a case of these procedures, the, 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 the flow charts that they have in Brussels or that they have in the Houses of Parliament right now, They've got their own laid out and they know how many steps they have until no deal actually becomes a realistic possibility. So they know that things that they can do now before uh, prior to that actually happening. So and this is one of the reasons why I think if Theresa May does come back to Parliament and make it back to Parliament, I should say as well, with no changes to a deal. I think this is one of the reasons why this isn't happening before Christmas because the closer to we are to that, I think it's what, January 21st deadline. Um, when yes, so debating to... will begin on the 14th because we're again going through the five days of Brexit debate. And the closer we are to that 21st, it becomes more of a no deal or Theresa deal uh, when you're reaching sure. that point. And I think that works in her favour because the, the, the issue with the vote earlier this week was if MPs knew that if they voted it down, that they would have a second a second a second bite uh, at something before no deal became realistic and this is all part of the political games which and the the brinkmanship and everything that we're going through right now is 
you can't take everything that everyone says seriously. You have to take everything with a piece of salt because, for example, there's not a, there's no chance, no matter how much MPs have been criticising Theresa May's deal and saying it's the worst thing since whatever, there's no chance. <laughs> they, they've also been saying that this better than no, the no deal is even worse so faced with those two faced with those two choices i still think they would go for theresa may's deal and theresa may i think is trying to construct a scenario where they have to pick between the two yeah and yet it is a false choice isn't it that within the deal within legislation it is possible to extend article 50 um we also have the ecj the european court of justice ruling that article 50 is um unilaterally revocable reversible um, this idea that it is no deal or made may deal or no deal um, is false. I mean, it is a political construct. Exactly, and that's that's. But uh, doesn't that push things on even further? It does, and it it creates another range of uh, possibilities for how this can actually go as well. And this is why no wonder everyone's so confused. I'm confused. I'm sitting here right now, and I've spent all week trying to piece this together in my head as to where we could possibly go and when we could do it and who could do what and when they could do it and even now you, you, you we're talking about possibilities that are actually realistically on the table and we're still in agreement that neither side wants no deal it's a case of how do we get there and as we said off air prior to the show this is one of the reasons why the european commission probably was so disappointed with ecj's ruling on revoking article 50 the uk's ability to unilaterally do so because that has taken a little bit of the leverage away from their negotiations. And these negotiations are all about leverage. The Article 50 was designed to give the leverage entirely to Europe and not to the country that was voting to leave. And they've lost a little bit of that with this ruling. Yeah, although I doubt that any country will look at the last two years in the UK and say, you know what, not only do we want that, but we want to be able to spring in and out of that indefinitely. But spreading this around, stretching this out, is not going to be good for businesses it's not good for political unity there's very few people who it is actually positive for it's not good for our sanity either and i'm not talking about just myself and you who spend half our lives talking about it i'm talking about people people are getting bored and people are getting bored quickly and with that it's going to come pressure on the politicians and if that's not enough to get things moving the markets will have their say because we have to remember that in all of this investors are watching what's going on and they're becoming increasingly frustrated but also increasingly losing faith in a solution to be found and we are it does feel like we are sleepwalking now towards an accidental no deal brexit if that's possible talk me through actually the financial side of this if i was a canny investor if i was um uh, a backing away from sterling for example would i be making lots of money at the moment the pound has been slipping, and um, especially when the, when it became apparent that Theresa May was going to face a no confidence vote and that she was cancelling the, uh, the 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 vote on her deal, then pound has been slipping since. We did see a bit of a bounce back uh, a couple of days ago when she actually won the vote, but that was a very brief bounce. And we are uh, when I left the office this morning, we were. Uh, heading south again with regards to the pound so it seems that people are losing faith in it and this is a pound that while we were seeing general weakness we were seeing it hold uh, at certain levels mm. so with the against the euro it was against it was 90 cents uh, we weren't breaching this level and this for me was a sign of confidence that we were going to get somewhere eventually it was not a case of if it was a case of when the same was true with the US dollar against the US dollar we were holding on 127 uh, 126.50 we were never really breaching that level we were bouncing higher on good news we were falling short but that level was holding so this was these so levels a ceiling on confidence as there were and it broke mm. it broke when Theresa May 
when it became apparent that Theresa May was facing a no-confidence vote and we are now still outside of those levels. So this suggests to me that the, it's finally starting to take its toll. That's not to see that we've, they say we've seen a dramatic move. People don't care about half a percent, one percent moves. Sure, That's not unless you're moving your millions off holiday cash around, it's not going to make a substantial difference, but uh, exactly. it's still annoying. But, it, but over time... What about in terms of businesses, for example? Because months ago we were talking about the point at which people put their contingency plans into place. But you've got to have a little bit of lead-in time for this. Are you seeing businesses starting to commit funds to this? The bigger the bigger the business, the more we are seeing contingency plans put in place. Uh, we've seen the banks have already sort looked at setting up offices and already have offices in over in other locations and have already started moving jobs over. I think the Bank of England estimated it at around five thousand jobs, which in the grand scheme of things isn't massive, but it shows that they are putting provisions in mm. place in order to um, speed up, make the process as smooth as possible in the event of a no deal Brexit. But this is actually one of the more worrying things: is that a number of businesses don't have that luxury. Because putting provisions in place, moving operations abroad is very much a luxury that's really afforded to the firms who are making a lot more money, who they can therefore afford everything that comes with it. It's not just a case of setting up an office. It's the entire administration process which comes with it, the exploration, sure. the research, everything that comes with it. This Licenses is a, and things like I that. I, I saw a number. I can't remember off the top of my head what the number is. But the amount of money spent on making provisions in case of in the case of Brexit and in case of no deal Brexit happening is staggering and there's a lot of businesses in this country that do not have that luxury so this is actually the more worrying thing it's it's not a case of are we seeing examples of it moving the more worrying thing is we're probably seeing plenty of evidence of companies not making provisions at all in the hope that common sense prevails and that they don't have to and that they won't have had to waste effort and money that they don't have in order to do so. And I, I genuinely believe that that's where we would see uh, a lot of the pain in the aftermath of a messy no-deal Brexit, which again is still my base case. I do not believe it will happen because I do think that common sense will prevail amongst people who will be held responsible for whatever happens after. I'm going to leave that note of optimism to move on to other stories around the globe. And let's move to central banks, which have been now for several years the major driver of um, economic um, information in the globe. Um, we have had the European Central Bank actually end its 2.5 trillion euro um, quantitative easing, its bond buying package um, just this week. But it seems to have come at precisely the wrong time because we're all, we're now we're seeing slowdown in the European economy um, and also just a general lack of confidence as, as the politics shifts. But I think we hear that every time a central bank looks to tighten. We've we, we've been through a decade in which central banks haven't had to tighten or haven't been able to tighten monetary policy. There's an entire generation of people, and it includes myself, who have never even lived through a interest rate hiking cycle. So. The central banks have been very accommodative for far too long, uh, and that does create potential instability in the financial system in the longer term, and that's something that these central banks are extremely aware of. So yes, it's not the perfect time to be ending a, quant ending a quantitative easing program, but we also have to remember that this was unconventional monetary policy that had never been used before. So by ending it, they're actually just ending this period, uh, uh, the, the, this experiment um, that they were doing to take to try and support the economy through an extraordinary time. We're not in an extraordinary time anymore. We're in a uh, we're, we're in an unsavoury time. We're, we're seeing <laughs> we're seeing rise of populism. We are seeing growth, even if it's low. Unemployment has fallen down to more uh, sustainable levels. We 
the the, you, the the situation now compared to in 2015 when the bombine program was launched is vastly vastly different so i'm actually of the opinion that we don't need quantitative easing anymore and after again after a decade we have to be looking at normalizing these the the the, the, the interest rate markets because otherwise we are just effectively sowing the seeds for a future crisis and there's already evidence of but what if up. we are sowing those seeds with this actual pullback one of the issues with um, QE at the um, time was that it was effectively central banks taking over where really governments mm-hmm. should have um, the you know the, the research papers have been written that austerity didn't work and if it had not gone through the uh, you know the um, Essentially, kind of cutting growth, then the uh, the QE program wouldn't have been necessary in the way that it was. I put to you that if you actually create a weapon like quantitative easing and say we've used it once, it works, but we'll never use it again, you'll always end up eating those words. But then you look at a situation, and actually, I would say as well, like the the, the central banks will use QE again, and the next financial crisis that we have, and it's not going to be necessarily like the two thousand and eight global financial crisis. It could sure, just be because you never recession. get a full repeat. Yeah. But there may be a minor recession and they will use QE again because they will look back on this. And there is going to be many, many more research papers written over the next decade or two to evaluate just how successful mm. quantitative easing was and whether the pros uh, whether the, the pros made up for the cons that come with going undergoing such a huge uh, monetary experiment. But I think central banks will look at this right now and say this was successful. We stabilised the system at a time when everything looked like it was on the verge of collapse. We look at the situation in the US right now where they are starting to unwind and there hasn't been any major issues associated with the unwinding of this. The US has raised interest rates now 2% compared to where it was uh, during the financial crisis when they were pumping more bonds. They've already started allowing the expiring bonds to not be reinvested. So gradually, slowly but surely, their balance sheet is actually starting to reduce. And this is what the aims of the ECB will be. It's not right now. They are going to continue to reinvest. So let's not forget there is still going to be those trillions of euros pumping through the financial system. They're not withdrawing anything. They're just not adding to the pile. So there's huge amounts of accommodation still. And that on top of the fact that we've got pretty much zero interest rates there's so much accommodation still, and they are going to continue to support the economy. But very gradually and slowly but surely, they're going to start tightening monetary policy and bringing us back to normal. And like I say, the 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 lesson that we've had from the last few years from the US, and this is pre-Trump, pre-tax cuts, mm. pre three and a half percent growth. This was when the economy was growing at two percent and was ticking along nicely, gradual improvements. The lessons we had there was it's actually worked quite well. And now the US is in a far healthier position than. The Europe than, than Europe is right now, because if they're faced with a recession, they can actually cut interest rates. Europe can't. And so you have to slowly but surely move your way out of this. The question, the, you just may want to be sure that you're not tightening too quickly to trigger a recession rather than stop one. Well, let's talk about that. Let's look ahead to 2019. Let's look ahead to what is you know, potentially an even newer normal. Um, we are in a period of global uncertainty. Um, we have um, you know, issues all around the world, political, economic, fiscal, um, corporate. What are the trigger points for you in the coming year? What are you looking for as the major risks? I think every region has its own, but I think one that all countries seem to have in common one thing that they all have in common is uh, we are seeing a rise of populism everywhere we look. And that's, in Can some I, countries, is going We never to... define this. Would you agree with me? So populism, you mean simple solutions to complex problems? Yes, but it's also there's also a lot of other things that these uh, that these populist parties have in common. One is it's very very much a us first, them second type approach. You've seen Donald Trump with America first. We've seen the UK and 
I know those are the fundamental problems behind it, so I don't want to just pigeonhole Brexit and say this is a populism march and nothing else. There is huge, there is a number of things which resulted in the actual Brexit vote itself and the result, uh, and we ha and there's no point in trying to just call it one thing. But people will always associate it with problem with. with prioritizing the uk at the uh, and and not the 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 block as a whole we've seen it in france as well even if we do currently have a europhile in charge someone who is very pro europe who is very much in the center ground slightly uh, slightly right of center we are seeing parties in france right now who are more uh, on the populist side of things and these are people again prioritizing prioritizing france first wanting to spend more money wanting to go against previous uh, uh advice with regards to domestic spending and these types of issues the right we are seeing this across numerous countries right now uh, and i think that that is a risk and it's a risk primarily for brussels because we've seen right now we're in a, we're in a situation with italy where there is big disputes over italy's fiscal deficit now, Italy believes that this is a sovereign issue, that they should be able to decide how they spend and what they spend. But Brussels has its rules for a reason, because they're trying to align all of these countries. And if they allow one to go off and spend uh, as and as and how they wish, and be try, at a time when all these economies are so linked up. So if you, yes, you can have a little fine, a little crisis of your own if these goes wrong, but it will have an impact on everyone else. That's the whole reason why these rules are, are, are so aligned. Uh, this is going to create problems for Europe. Uh, and I think that is one of the major risks for next year is the fact that we're seeing a rise of populism in Italy. We've seen the protests and the riots in France recently, uh, and we've seen what the the rate the, the popularity ratings are for Emmanuel Macron at this moment in time. Angela Merkel has been uh, has been a sustain a, a, a driving force of stability for Europe over the course of this global financial crisis and the European debt crisis which followed. She will be moving on. I know she plans to hang around till twenty twenty one. I think it is. But when you've just elected a new leader of your party, I think there's surely conversations sure, happening in the background. Aspect, yeah. Exactly. Um, and and on a, I think one of the reasons she stepped down as well again is because populism in germany has been growing um, throughout the refugee crisis so this i think is what the major risk for 2019 we're also facing a year where global economic growth is expected to slow we're already seeing a slowdown in china china the us are having negotiations at the moment to try and avert a trade war but it's hard to be too optimistic at this stage because it feels like there's a lot more that can go wrong than can go right. But we can hope that the next 90 days goes well and that we can actually start to see some progress and we can start to see tariffs removed. But again, that's another major risk because they're the two world's largest economies. And if they start chip chipping away at each other's growth and start the trade barriers start to go up, then you would imagine that, it could, that there's potential, therefore, for it to follow anywhere in other countries. We've seen, again, Trump tagged in the car industry in Europe, for example, uh, as an example of that. So there are risks. But then it's also worth pointing out because I don't want to sound like a doom and gloomer. The global economy is still doing well. The UK, yes, Brexit hasn't happened yet, but I think many people have been surprised at just how uh, resilient the economy has been throughout the last two years of uncertainty. Um, uh, I think many economies may have suffered more than the UK has. And that's been helped actually as well by the fact that the global economy has been performing well. The US is expected to slow down next year. But it's growing at three and a half to four percent. If it slows down to two and a half percent, that's still a very good level of growth. And all in with all of this and all the threats to Europe with regards to populism in particular, and the fact that the economy has slowed this year, again, it's still growing at a decent rate. Unemployment is still falling. Countries are still gradually recovering, and 
fiscal purse strings are loosening along with that because they are now viewing these things in a slightly different manner. So I do think there are tailwind risks. There are upside risks for uh, the global economy next year, but we can't ignore what is some significant headwinds and you have to, you, you feel in some cases are very much self-inflicted uh, wounds that we can't ignore for next year because I think if we think this year has been eventful, I think next year is going to be more so. Craig, mixed things to uh, to end on though, although admittedly a bit more cheery than um, uh, I was expecting for such a difficult week. Craig, an absolute pleasure to speak to you as always. This is the Oanda Market Insights podcast available from iTunes and all the places where podcasts live. Let's be honest, things won't get any quieter in the news, so do join us again next week. That was Craig Earlham, Market Analyst at Oanda, and I'm Nick Howard. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.